Welcome to Dog Talk and Kitties Too. I'm Tracy Hotchner. I wrote the Dog Bible, Everything Your Dog Wants You to Know, as well as the Cat Bible, Everything Your Cat Expects You to Know, because I care about people who care about cats and dogs. The human-animal bond is what this show is all about, finding authors and experts to talk about cats, dogs, and the many other creatures who share our world. This is listener-supported WLIW-FM, Long Island's only NPR station in Southampton, serving Eastern Long Island and Southern Connecticut over the air at 88.3 and at 96.9 in Western Suffolk. This is where I originated this show and have never missed a week for 14 years. At RadioPetLady.com, there's a podcast library with more than 750 episodes along with my other Pet Talk podcast shows. Dog Talk is a production of Pet Media, Inc., which is solely responsible for its content. This show is made possible with the support of Dr. Elsie's Precious Cat, the privately owned litter and cat food company founded by Dr. Elsie, a feline-only veterinarian in Colorado, where he created a variety of litters as well as inventing clean protein cat foods based on the protein found in cats' natural prey. This show is also brought to you by Waruva, the Foreman family-owned pet food company named after their rescued kitties, Webster, Rudy, and Vanessa, where all their recipes and cans and pouches are human edible because they're made in a human food facility. I have only two guests today because Jackie Higgins has a lot to say in her book, Sentient, how animals illuminate the wonder of our human senses. And then Frank Mortimer is joining me with his book, Bee People and the Bugs They Love, because bees are one of those many creatures with amazing senses. Just when I thought there was nothing more for us to learn about animals, it turns out the human animal is one of the most extraordinary ones around. And it took Jackie Higgins, who has a degree in zoology from Oxford University and lives in London, to write a book that will absolutely blow your mind and blow open your senses. It's called Sentient, How Animals Illuminate the Wonder of our human senses. And when I first read that subtitle, I thought, wait, aren't we all supposed to be amazed all the time about how bats can fly in the dark and dogs can sniff a drop of blood in a swimming pool? Well, it turns out we're pretty amazing too. Jackie, this book is so amazing because there have been wonderful books about the ways that creatures of every kind, from insects to you know giraffes, can do things that we are supposed to be in awe of, and we are in awe of them. But at what point in your thinking, and you're you're a filmmaker, you've made a lot of films about nature for many different um, outlets. At what point did you stop and think, hey, we're not so bad either? (laughs) (laughs) I I think, um, first of all, Tracy, thank you very much for having me here today to discuss this. I'm really grateful. Um, I think, I mean, really studying zoology. So we're now going back some three decades when I left. um, Right. Oxford. Um, I was always interested in zoology to better understand ourselves. I've, ah. I use a metaphor that it's like a mirror mm-hmm. that we can hold up to better understand or more clearly think about ourselves. Because being ourselves is such a kind of involved process and such a mundane process, we forget about it. So I use animals really to set up a little bit of distance so we can look at ourselves a bit more independently with fresh eyes. Um, 
And when I left um, Oxford, I joined a company called Oxford Scientific Films, which is a um, highly innovative um, filming, filmmaking um, setup that they invented all sorts of ways of filming the natural world, ways that we now take for granted. Right. All those love lipstick cameras inside nest boxes so you could see birds hatch out. Or yes. They used scope cameras so you could you could dip down the lens beneath the um, beneath the meniscus of the water and watch the piranhas uh, biting without right. having to go to yourself. Or, so they used all these tactics. And at that time, um, around that time, there was a really rather wonderful series that hits the BBC called Supersense, a series made by John Downer. And it was all about animals and, and their amazing senses, as you say. But I've always been interested in how that reflects on us. Um, I'm also thinking of a book I loved when I was a kid called The Naked Ape by Desmond Morris. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. So he used primates to kind of better understand ourselves. That's right. Um, And I thought it would be fun to kind of really widen the net and um, look at animals really distant from us in the evolutionary tree. I mean, the very last chapters on the octopus. (laughs) Yes. um, Yeah. or the platypus. The platypus. The platypus. But the platypus is a mammal. So, you know, nearer nearer in our family tree than, than that octopus. So I just wanted to kind of play with play with that notion that we're part of this sweeping, epic um evolutionary family, you know, our, our um and and what's um and because we share din, din, distant, distant relatives with these creatures, there are commonalities. Sometimes it's independent evolution, but sometimes um you know, there are shared shared roots. So that was really interesting in the research to well, find these. Well, what's what was what's delicious about the book, and, and I do mean delicious, is that it's both scholarly in that you have cast a very wide net to give examples of all the kinds of fascinating research that's been done on very specific animals or very specific body parts of animals like the ear of the owl. And... Yes shown us this devotion that there are scientists and researchers who've spent decades studying one thing, and then maybe someone's written a book about that. Or in the case of the octopus, there's the wonderful octopus movie that we all saw and loved, right? But but you give us this enormous wide view, which is, but what does that show us about what we could do or might do or aren't even aware that we can do? And I think some of the examples do make us think of, oh, there's a book I read or there's an idea that I had or a movie I saw or a conversation that was had. Your book, I think, for me, it is very much a brain awakener. I mean, you talk about oh. Helen Keller referring to the fact that deafness was worse than blindness. And mm. that's in a chapter that's about hearing and mm. what we can hear and what we can't hear. And so many of us kind of think we have ideas about these things. Well, I personally have bad vision, always worn glasses my whole life. So I've always been aware that I can pick up clues to who people are either through their voice on the phone with just a hello. I thought, mm. oh, that must be because I have poor vision. But I didn't know if there was any science to that. Or no. I can see somebody at a great distance and know who it is because of their gait, something about their body language or gait, which has nothing to do with actually seeing them, but getting a sense of them. But your book explains in the most amazing details all the different kinds of artists also who have Mm. studied 
our senses. So John Cage, now that was a great, great example of about this man who wrote music that many people at the time must have just thought was screechy sounds, right? And maybe some of us still think it's screechy sounds or the absence of sound. But you write about him going in something called a Baronex box at Harvard, which was sensory deprivation. And all he could hear was two sounds, his blood flowing and his nervous system. He could hear his scalp moving. Like, Jackie, how did you... I mean, does everyone have access to that information? It was like, yes. oh my God, this is so cool. I mean, I, I couldn't, I mean, my footnotes and my bibliography is vast because I couldn't, all the information and wh- where I picked up, everything is, you know, double, treble checked. It's all yes. kind of backed up with scientific papers. I spoke to the scientists. I Like I, you know, I stand on the shoulders of these giants and these wonderful people who are doing these studies. And I've got... I suppose I'm really interested, in addition to being a scientist, I've always been, I made documentaries, I've always been interested in the visual, I've written books on photography, I'm really interested in the kind of artistic sense, and I really wanted, I know that when I read um, scientific books, the ones that sing for me are the ones that have a real dense human experience. They include Shakespeare and Mm -hmm. poetry, Nabokov and um, Monet and music. Yes, and, you know, very at the very beginning, I, you see, I just finished what, um, doing some books on photography. I did a, a book called The World Atlas of Street Photography, um, and, you know, Why It's Not Important, um, and other books on photography. And I came to the senses through the art world. I was really interested maybe in looking at colour and how that makes us feel, you know, Rothko's. Yes. I, was, I was thinking about... Um, sculpture and feeling sculpture and how that makes us feel listening to music i love oliver Sacks and his book on on music music um and oliver Sacks has always fascinated me again because of his deep and intimate and um generous um investigation of the human condition um so the book kind of the book was about art at some stage and then it grew into it just morphed and morphed and this is how it ended up but i i wanted all that to be in there you know i loved diane ackerman's book about the senses um the natural history of the senses um and you it, also you also quote oliver sacks in a number of places one of which which yeah. is amazing is one of i think it was the music affiliate or whatever that one was called I think that was the one that you you quoted him on yeah. a number of occasions. But the fascinating one was that he spoke about a patient who he described as having taken some PCP and some other hallucinogens. And and then it turned out it was him. He didn't admit this until much later in right. life. Right. Wonderful. It's yes. Wonderful. It was it's wonderful because it shows something about him. And it it's does. Wonderful what, um, I mean, actually exemplified my chapter because this chapter is about the bloodhound. And, right. um, and we always think the bloodhound as we always call the bloodhound the kind of the swami of smell, the maestro of smell. Mm-hmm. And a lot of science from different people um, across across the world is beginning to kind of piece together the fact that we're not such bad smellers. We're actually rather wonderful. I mean, there was this lovely study done, the Rockefeller smell study that tried to get a handle on how many sense we can discern between. Um, If you think that audible tones, most um, people studying our ears would say we can kind of uh, discern between tens of thousands of tones. Um, Colours, we're we're supposedly able to um, be able to discern between millions of colours. But this Rockefeller study showed that we can discern between trillions, 
trillions of cents. So this set, this this um this sense this sense that we often don't really think about or kind of focus on is actually rather miraculous and wonderful. Um, and that's and what that- that's what makes the book so exciting. Is for example the, the chapter on Bloodhound, which I chose because you know this show is called Dog Talk, but now I include yeah. all creatures and all animals. But the idea that the human that human olfactory senses are inferior is a myth. Yes. So we've all stood in awe of the same old oh, a drop of blood in the swimming pool and the dog can smell it. But you show how these how these studies were done and the taping of the human's nostrils. First, the right, a whole bunch of people. I mean, the results are amazing because you actually come up with a new word to me, stereoscopic smell. It's that we have two nostrils. And so it's in stereo. But also, Jackie, what about the fact that a bunch of people are sitting around putting scotch tape on their nose? Yeah. You know, it's like, oh, my God, people are so on their knees and their hands and they're getting down on all fours and following a scent trail, you know, piece of twine dipped in chocolate. Yes. Oil of chocolate. And this is a scientific project that took place that took place in the University of California, Berkeley. I mean, it's it's marvelous. And and that's the other thing I think. You know, so after making wildlife films, I made science documentaries um, for Horizon, for Nova, um, but, you know, where the scientists were able, I, you know, I made films about cosmology, about human evolution, about a lost lake in the Antarctic called Lake Vostok. And it's all, and what I learned is that scientists are, are they unsung heroes. They go off and they study a very particular um, aspect of the world and really do a deep dive on it. And their levels of enthusiasm to share how they, you know, how they, um, what they've found are just, you know, it's really important to listen to these people. So giving them a voice is, is a really important part of the book. That's, that's well said, because they really are extraordinary. I mean, you could say they're uber geeks, right, in the kind of yeah. common use of the word. They're just monomaniacal. They are going to follow this one idea as far as it takes them. Yeah. And they just keep keeping on. And if it yeah. weren't for them, whether it's studying the cause of cancer right? Or how to build a better water filtration system, or these things that have to do with the nature of nature. It's it's so cool. Tell the story about Richard Feynman, because you tell about him sniffing the book pages, just so I can set it up. So the, the chapter on the bloodhound and smelling is called The Bloodhound and Our Sense of Smell. So you have a great thing all about how the bloodhound's nose, all the geography of the inside of the nose and the, and the, the jowls and the, and the ears that pick up all the scent. And then you talk about Richard Feynman, who I guess he's won a Nobel or a Pulitzer or something. He's like the genius, right? Uh, in fact, I got an audio book of, of his book called Mr. Feynman, You Must Be Kidding. And I yes. think it was seemed too dense for, I don't know. I didn't keep listening. I think it made me feel stupid. Your ah. book makes me feel smart. Even though I couldn't put all the ideas together that you put, at least I get a sense of what you're talking about. Tell the story <laughs> of him doing I mean, a parlor trick about how yes. well a human can actually smell if they give themselves a chance. So it was a story. Had you carried on listening to that book, surely you're joking, Mr. Feynman. Yes. It would have been a story. He basically had the super trick. But he would, a party trick, so he'd leave the room and he'd point out a bookshelf um, and say, you know, pick one of those books 
and um, the, his target would go up. And while while Feynman's back was turned, they would pluck one book off the shelf and then they'd put it back and make sure very carefully that it didn't look like it had been removed and replaced. Right. So it was just perfect. And then he would come back into the room and only using his nose, he would smell that lineup of books and invariably he would pick the book that had been touched because he could smell the fact that it had been touched. And so the point I'm making with this is that this is not just a trick that that um, Feynman could do. We could all do it if we put our minds to it because our nose is has these latent capabilities that we don't use. Yes. I mean, they don't, don't isn't there the kind of the, the common phrase that we only use some tiny percentage of our brain, for example. So what a waste, all this lovely brain matter gone to waste. And so people do crossword puzzles and wordle and feel that they're somehow, you know, stimulating their brain yeah. or using some yeah. other little, but it's not yeah. just the brain. You know, you yeah, talk yeah. about sight and yeah. sound and yeah. motion and all these other things. Um, I, I just want to, well, remember, all these other things, ultimately, the real sense organ is our brain. So we've right. got all the senses around our body and the obvious ones, you know, that Aristotle talked about, our eyes, our, our, our vision organs, our um, nose, ears, tongue, te- um, uh, tongue and um, skin. Those are the obvious um, senses. And they're relaying information to this brain, which is sitting inside our skull in a dark vat completely cut off from the world but this i'm so sad thankfully connected to these senses and the brain is the ultimate sense organ it's not me that had that idea by the way that's a very another famous intellectual giant neuroscientist called paul bakirita who talks about the brain being the ultimate sense organ and that's where all our senses feed to and that's where our sensory perceptions and experiences and sentience um comes comes to be. Well, I mean, I think what what I mean is that it makes me feel smart to read your book is I've never thought about or heard about many of the scientists or the thought leaders, but when you talk about them, they're very accessible because you yes. weave together a number of ideas so that we the reader that's reading sentient can think, "Ah, I get it." Well, that's kind of interesting because I, I, you know, one of the things we're clearly going to have to keep on talking. So yes, everybody sit back. Um, just <laughs> enjoy Jackie Higgins. She's amazing. It's, you can't not read Sentient. It really will make you so admire the human being, as well as all the creatures who she, you know, you talk in such great detail about them, Jackie. But I'm wondering about... Can I just say one quick please. thing? Made me think. The best compliments I've got about this book are not from people, from people who've never picked up a science book. In, right. in a weird way, although the book's been labelled as popular science, I slightly rebel against that. It's just about being curious. Yes. It's about wondering who we are, why we are, how we're connected. It's about, it's a, someone called it, a, uh, well, John Fuselgang interviewed me last week and he called it a document of hope. That makes oh. my sore. It is hopeful. It is optimistic, but it's not, It's in a way, it's not a science book. I know it rests on on scientific shoulders, but it's it's about being human and yes. about curiosity. It is about curiosity, and it's a celebration of who we are, but also what we could be if we pushed ourselves a little and didn't limit ourselves with the idea that, oh, you know, well, I'm getting old. You, you talk about hearing loss that comes yes. with humans, and 
by the time you're 75 or something, half the people have had hearing loss. But up until then, or even until then, this issue of hearing, and we're going to talk about the owl because, you know, what you've gathered about owls and their acute hearing, which you call ear sight. Now, okay, maybe you didn't coin the phrase, but I've certainly never heard it. The idea that your ears can give you sight. You can see with what you can hear. It's true of people. And you talk about experiments done on people. And I guess it's really that we should celebrate, explore our senses more. And not think, yeah. well, I mean, I've, I took one of, I have two Weimar honors and one of them was bred for hunting. And so I thought, well, I should, I, I, to have fun with them and keep them busy, I'll take them to learn how to do scent work, as they call it, you know, dogs following a trail. Because you also can do a public service and if people go missing and you've gotten accredited, the police will call on you at any hour of the day or night, you know, an old person, a young person, you know, a kidnapped person. So I thought, well, that would be great. It was way too much work. It was way more work than you'd have to have, I think, no other job if you really wanted to train the dog properly. But I was in awe of the fact that, and I've seen her do it on the lawn, that she goes zigzag across the footprints of whatever it may be or the treats that are put in 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 a kind of a straight-ish line. And then you describe the fact that the people in that experiment, they zigzag too to pick up yes. the odor of the chocolate that had been dipped onto a piece of twine. It's like, wow, yeah, wow. Wanda yeah. Weimer on her is so cool, but I could maybe go out and smell the fox yeah. feet. Now, I'm not <laughs> saying I really am motivated to do it, But it does make you appreciate it more. One of the things that you talk about before we go to the hearing is the smell, is this issue with COVID. And I'm a little surprised by everyone, if you don't mind me saying this, making such a big fuss about, oh, they lost their sense of smell for a while. I personally had my sense of smell cut off, ironically, in an ambulance accident in the Hamptons when I was a volunteer EMT and driver, and we were in a pretty horrific accident going through a stoplight. And all of us were knocked around. All the EMTs and the advanced EMTs in the back were knocked around. And I cracked some ribs, and a friend had her nose broken and had to go into surgery, and someone else's teeth were knocked loose. Someone else had a concussion, and I didn't know I'd had a head injury. But for a while afterwards, as I was, you know, Mm -hmm. trying not to take deep breaths, I wasn't aware I had no sense of smell. I wasn't aware of it at all. And part of your book is the realization you can have memories of things. You can remember what things smell like and you imagine you're still smelling them. And it wasn't until I went to an ear, nose, throat doctor and they thought, well, it must be your allergies or as you say in the book, a viral infection or for some people, COVID, that it became clear that I had no sense of smell. And You know, it, people are saying it's tragic. My life is removed. I mean, it's, you know, it's true. It's not good. If your house was on fire, you unless you saw it, mm-hmm. you could not smell it. But mm-hmm. do you really think that losing one sense is so tragic or so devastating or so? I mean, I, I'm yeah. never going to get it back. Apparently, there's a there's you know, if your brain plates shift or something, you cut off that nerve, those nerves, and they can't grow back because they're cut. And there you go. You never s- that, smell anything oh, again. Well, there's, I mean, there was, I think the reason why smell, loss of smell is particularly perturbing for some people is that what we don't realize is that taste or flavor is the is majority smell. So when you chew, chew your piece of chocolate, 
you can taste that it's sweet. You, your taste receptors on your tongue notice its sweetness, but that's about it. And right. the rest of the molecules that um, you release when you're chewing go up the, this backward route called the retronasal route. It's a, it's a fancy way for saying that smell molecules rise up the back of your throat towards your nose, and they're snagged by the little olfactory receptors in your nose. And what's wonderful about your brain is your brain then hoodwinks you into thinking that what you've smelt is what you've tasted on your tongue. <laughs> That's brilliant. That's so cool. <laughs> it's so cool. So so maybe, so smell has bigger implications than not just being able to smell your morning coffee. It, it does. So people, some people lose weight because they become less interested in food. Some people put on weight because they're craving some form of, of flavor. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so different things happen. One of the conversations, and I almost did this, and I slightly wish I had done this. I had a conversation with all the scientists about, to tell me, which which sense would you least like to lose? Oh, yeah? I'd love to know what that was about. I know, and I should have done. I almost thought of doing this pie chart in the back of the book. Yeah. We all say vision. We right. all say vision. Yes. But not the, not the touch scientists. I mean, imagine not being able to feel the world or to feel the world touching you or people touching you or your dog brushing up against your leg. Um, I think... I mean, this comes back to the whole thing about the book is we take our senses so much for granted. We they do. circumscribe every waking moment. We do. And so we don't appreciate them. And it's only when something goes missing that you then do appreciate it. You're so um, right. And that's why so, that Helen Keller comment that you have in the book, that, yeah. that she thought deafness was worse than blindness, much worse. There, do you know the artist James Terrell? I've heard of him. Okay, is he so a light artist? He's a light artist, and and yeah. he has a big installation at Mass Mocha, which is a gigantic, you know, sort of almost alternative art space in the Berkshires. A lot of people, it's a destination for art lovers and amazing installations, gigantic things. And he has a permanent building they've given him that has something called Into the Light, and it's a room that you can't tell up from down. But, oh, but wow. what fascinated me... I, and I was quite irritated by it. And then when I read your book, I was like, oh, if only I had read Sentient beforehand, I could have gotten so much more out of it. They had what I thought was a sensory deprivation chamber. But there were chambers you had to – they were dark, dark, dark rooms. That you yeah. could not – you had to go up a ramp to get in them and just sort of feel the black walls to find your way in. And there was a chair that you kind of could feel. And only two people could go in at a time. I went in with my sister who's a museum director. So she knew all about James Terrell and – He's, you know, I don't know, universally acclaimed as being someone who studies light. Well, this was yeah. a study of darkness. And yeah. so you're in this black space. You're only allowed 10 minutes in there. I, of course, with my impatience, was like, this is not fun or interesting. It was pitch black. And they said after a while, theoretically, you could kind of see something, but you couldn't. Yeah. I wish that that you had been able to, maybe you still could interview him about what was his intention as an artist. I, I was just irritated. I thought I'd been played for a fool. I don't know why it oh. irritated me so much because I didn't know how to get anything out of it, Jackie. It sounds like you, it, was, it was badly set up. So if you knew what to get out of it, exactly. you might be I mean, I would have, one of the, the scientists who I spoke, and I was amazed by this, is so the, the chapter that I do on dark vision with the spookfish teaching yes. us how to be in the dark. Yes. And the scientist that I was speaking to, you have to be in a completely dark place until your rods, which are the really sensitive, light-sensitive sensors on your retina, 
acclimatize. Um, and there's that wonderful study that I that I cover in the book about the fact that on, on brief occasions, people seem like they're able to detect one photon of light. I mean, that's taking it to the extreme and whether right. one can or can't, it's a real, it's a blurry zone. But on average, it does seem, the studies suggest that we can. But I wish that I wish that they, that they could sell copies of sentient. I don't think they have those. I call them sensory deprivation chambers. It was sort of like, oh, is this what you do to make a you know a spy give up his secrets? It seemed like <laughs> oh my, not waterboarding, but why? I I wish I had had a sense of that. Yeah, supposedly, at some point you began to see something, and I'm just yeah. tapping my foot, just too impatient, <laughs> as you say. You know, you have to tune into it, just like you'd have yeah. to get on all fours and sniff the I ground or. And do what those ancient astronomers used to do, which is the very, because you've got to remember that on your retina, the central part, your central fovea is mainly cone cells, enabling you to see sharp, colorful vision. And you need to kind of, um, you need to look out, make sure the light reaches the bit around the edge of your retina, which is where your rods are. So it's when you're looking at something askance. I found, I was doing this experiment on myself. I live in, I, I often go and stay in a little cottage near Wales where there's no light pollution, it's really dark. And I close my curtains at night. When I look at the, the, the crack between the curtain and the wall um, with my center of vision, I just see black. But then if I look to the side, a little glimmer of light comes up. And I know that that's because now that little, the, the light that's getting through is hitting my rods. And, <laughs> and, yeah. <laughs> It must be amazing being you. Every everything you see, touch, smell, you think, "Aha! Now I, I think I, I think I've got that." I want to talk about the owl and ear sight because it's so amazing how these owls can hear or yeah. therefore see this little rustlings of their prey, maybe under a leaf or on top of the snow, and 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 the realization that it's really. The, the the feathers around their face and the shape of their face that's kind of a parabola that yes. not only catches the sound, but that their ears are not symmetrical on their head. Talk about that. That's like, what a cool idea. What could we learn from that? Or how can we put that to use for greedy, selfish humans? So talk about their ear openings. They're, they're, um, well, and also you must look online um, I think it's the T. It's a footnote in the back of my book. I think it's the Teton Rapture Center, where um, a, um, an ornithologist catches a great gray owl, and he shows you behind. He peels apart. He he kind of parts their feathers at the edge of their facial disc, their big, their kind of moon face, yes. as it were. And he shows you their ear openings, and you can look inside Ooh. their and even see the backs of their eyeballs. I mean, it's wow. But they're at. They are at different heights because when when the great gray owl is sitting on a on a um, on a branch and it's trying to find that mouse and the mouse might be beneath the snow. By the way, this is how they knew that the owl was um, was tracking that uh, that mouse with sound because there was no visual um, imagery. Right. It couldn't see it. There was no heat released because it was it was insulated by a big mound of snow. Um, no smell because it was under the snow. So the only sense that was left, no touch because it was a long way away, the only sense that was left was it must be hearing them. Um, so when it's on the top of this tree, not only does it need to work out where in a horizontal line you're looking, if you imagine you've got your, you're looking through the owl's eyes at the moment and you see a horizontal line of, um, 
of landscape. Right. So first, it has to, if the ears were level, it would be able to say where on that horizontal line the mouse, the mouse is. But the problem it's also got is it's coming from a height. So it needs to also assess the verticality. It needs, a, it needs another, the, the y-axis, as it were, as well as the x-axis on the graph. And the fact that the ears are slightly different in height enables it to do that. And it, it, and it's, um, it uses information about um, um, the difference, the time difference between the sound arriving at both ears. Yes. Extraordinary computations. Well, I mean, I, I think that it's such a, your book is such a celebration, as you say, of these scientists that who, you know, who would, who would sit around thinking, okay, they're the great hearers. They've got ear sight. So the right ear is at eight o'clock below eye level. And the left ear is at two o'clock. So these sounds arrive to the owl at microscopically, not the right word, different times yeah. so that he can pinpoint yeah. or she can pinpoint where dinner is. Yeah. This is amazing, the work that these scientists did, scientists. these yes, researchers, and they never hurt the owls. I mean, you know, they, they look yeah. at the rough of their face and they say, actually, it's not the ears, it's this fluff of feathers that catches the sound, this, right? Yeah, of rough, said, a rough, I should say, not fluff. Yeah, this parabola. And the other wonderful story about the owl's feathers is not simply that um, it collects the sounds, but when they're, the feathers on the wings, again, scientists have studied these and they've, they've discovered how an owl flies silently. So these feathers are perfectly adapted to absorb the turbulence so that when the owl swoops in to catch the mouse... The mouse doesn't hear a thing. <laughs> and the mouse has good hearing because they've studied how the mouse hears too to yeah. protect himself. Yeah, Isn't really this amazing? Between the two creatures to, you know, out, outwit one another. I, I must say that it, it's hard not to think of the, the, uh, the sort of defense industry learning all kinds of ways that you can have submarines that no one can hear and see and airplanes yeah. that no, you know, you hate to think, oh, the best use of all this great animal information is killing machines, but it kind of is, or it could be defense machines, but you think yeah. that really would be, of course, it also could be to hear a rock concert in a better way. I mean, yeah, you could. All those planes that crisscross, you know, I just came back from Kenya, that long flight via Frankfurt. Imagine if that was silent as you took off. I mean, how much more pleasant would that be? You'd hear the roar of the engines, I suppose, but but the turbulence that that, that um, these these um, planes create would be dampened anyway. It's, <laughs> it's, there's there's just so very many ways that that what animals can do, what they're designed yes. to do, engineered to do by evolution is so much for us. We just have another minute, but I just want to give people a sense, just read out some of the chapter headings because I zoomed in on those two because I thought they were really, everyone could relate to them. The peacock yeah. mantis shrimp and our sense of color is like, okay, that's how we know what our sense of color is from a shrimp. <laughs> the the star-nosed mole and our sense of touch. You have wonderful stuff about people finding their way um, blindfolded in a room and, and knowing where the wall was because they can feel the change in the air. And it's like, wow, you know, this is, we're cooler than we ever thought. The common vampire bat and our senses of pleasure and pain, the Goliath catfish and our sense of taste. Now that, that's one I have to read more carefully since clearly along with my anosmia, my taste is probably badly blunted. They're not going to hire me to go work in a perfumery. The giant peacock of the night and our sense of desire, 
the cheetah, who is on the cover and such a beautiful color and our sense of balance, the trash line orb weaver and our sense of time, the bar-tailed godwit and our sense of direction, the common octopus and our sense of body, and of course, the afterward, the duck-billed platypus. Jackie Higgins, this book is just utterly divine. And I just, I'm going to put a link to the Teton Rapture Center so we, I too can, and we all can look at the owl's ears, but the way you write about it and bring nature to us and us to our own nature is a beautiful thing. Sentient, how animals illuminate the wonder of our senses. Thank you again for being here. My pleasure, Tracy. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thanks for having me. This show is brought to you in part by Merrick Pet Care, which began as a family-run company in Texas 30 years ago, where they are still making natural pet food. They also provide nutrition to pet shelters in Chicago and Texas and to the service dogs for veterans from Canines for Warriors. This show is also supported by Cradle, calming products to reduce stress for dogs using broad-spectrum CBD from U.S.-grown hemp formulated with a proprietary blend of nutraceutical ingredients. This show is supported by Earth Animal, privately owned by Dr. Bob and Susan Goldstein, creating holistic pet wellness products with an emphasis on their stewardship of the Pet Sustainability Coalition. This show is also sponsored by the two women who privately own Evermore Pet Food, where they cook dog food from human edible ingredients shipped in frozen pouches directly to people's doors. I have a most wonderful person here, a bee man, the bee man, as in buzzing bees. He's written a book called Bee People and the Bugs They Love. Frank Mortimer is a certified master beekeeper and adjunct instructor at the Cornell University Master Beekeeping Program and vice president of the New Jersey State Beekeepers Association. And by the way, I didn't even know any of those things existed. Frank, you're amazing. You're such a lover of bees and such a great explainer of them. I didn't even know all these titles existed when you first realized how much you loved bumblebees. Did you ever think you'd become a, a major figure in the bee world? No, it's it, it's funny. Like I always, my entire life, I wanted to be around bees, even though I never knew anybody that had them or I was never around them. Just something about me wanted to. And I, and I describe it, it started as a hobby, but now it is definitely an addiction. And so just I needed to just keep getting deeper and doing more. And, and that's what drives me and is my passion. Well, you know, addiction is obviously such a loaded word. I mean, I'm a pickleball addict. So I think you could be addicted yeah. to a sport. But I think the level of your fascination with and stewardship of and research into bees is more of a devotion than an addiction. It's 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 a, a devotion to these creatures who without you as the interpreter, I would never have understood the complexity of their lives and the funniness and the goofiness. I mean, not to them, but to us, you know, the, the things like you copulate and your penis explodes and you die. Seriously, that's how <laughs> nature planned it. And there's tens of thousands of these of these drones in are they the drones, the the, the sex workers? Yes, yep. They're the drones, right? Because everyone's divided right. into different sort of castes, if you will. It's it's interesting before we start talking um, in depth about the book that there really do seem to be people mesmerized by bees. And yet so many of us think, oh, my God, they're going to sting me. They're going to sting me. What's up with that, do you think, difference? Since your book is about bee people 
and the people who absolutely adore bees, keeping them, nurturing them, taking their honey, giving them ways to make more honey. What about you guys versus us? There's fewer of you than us, I think. Yeah. Well, and it's funny because I think that it's the modern generation um, that is is more afraid of bees than in decades past. And I, I blame that every starting with Bugs Bunny cartoons, because you think of, you know, like the big uh, fist of bees would come out of the hive and, and sock him in the face. And then also those bee exploitation uh, films from the 70s where all this bad stuff was going to happen. And, and so I think that, you know, people are less and less around nature. And so they're basing their opinions on on verified sources, which is why I like to do as many educational talks as I can to set the record straight. At Cornell, which is obviously a fabulous Ivy League university with many departments, they have an incredible vet school. They have a master beekeeping program. What is that? Can you describe it? Sure. A lot of, a lot of people might um, be familiar with like master gardeners. Yes. So the master beekeeping program is very similar. And, and the idea is to really elevate your knowledge about uh, bees, the bee biology, and ways to, to uh, treat and care for them. And what the Cornell program does is like their focus is getting people to think and talk about bees with a scientific background. And that's you too, although you make it very funny. I mean, when you're describing how they build their their combs and, and the, the interlife and the queen knocking off the other queen before she's fully ready to go, but a great deal of Shakespearean behind the scenes sort of, you know, uh, drama, you do it in a fun and funny way, but it's extremely rooted in science. How did you get all of this really microscopic knowledge of what those bees are doing in their hives. It wasn't from becoming a beekeeper yourself, I don't think, right? It, 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 I would say there's two sides to beekeeping. There's the, the practical side, which gets you off your couch and outside when you're putting your head in the hive. Then there's this whole nerd side because bees are one of the most researched creatures on the planet. Oh. And so there's constantly new journals that are coming out, articles, as well as a, a books like I have two two shelves on my bookshelf that is just for bee books and so I I am a self-professed bee nerd so a big thing of what I like to do is just read and, and learn about all that stuff as well which I think in turn helps me with my beekeeping so when you say they're the one of the most researched creatures on earth I didn't know that but why do you think that is? Let's say you're right, because you're not going to be wrong. You're teaching at Cornell. You're not going to say things, you know, out of your ear that you didn't know to be true. Why are bees so researched? I think it's it. I think it probably goes back to the, you know, humans have a sweet tooth. You know, it goes back to, you know, um, out of all the million milk that humans have the highest sugar content or one of the highest sugar contents. So I think that probably some of it's rooted in that biologically. And then I think, you know, with modern farming requires so much right. Uh, right. pollination. So I think that that combination is what, what it does. Like for instance, like um, the almond pollination, which takes place every February in Northern California is the largest pollination event in the world. And that is a $7.6 billion industry. So when you have that kind of money behind it, that's going to lead to research. 
How interesting. So we all have gotten the sense that almonds are big business, which, you know, they weren't always, and that people still have stolen trucks full of almonds and turns out to be $125,000, this this one big trailer rig of almonds. And we do, we, when I say we, I mean us who aren't bee nerds or, or even not bee smart. Um, we know that bees are required for pollination, but is, is that's an absolute requirement? That almond crop, that almond grove cannot make almonds without bees? That's correct. It's, it, it's like many, many to most of the, the fruits and plants that we eat, um, especially the best tasting ones, require a pollinator to, to, as a way to have the plant's sex act completed, meaning that pollen is actually the, the male part of the plant's reproductive system. So when the bee goes from flower to flower, it's depositing that male pollen um, into the, to the female. And then it actually, like there's an ovary in a plant that that's where the fruit develops. Well, what you describe, which is what, when I say that, that microscopic, although you do have pictures, photos in the book of those sacks of pollen on the back legs, it seems totally amazing. You describe, I mean, I'm not going to say what you describe. You describe it again now, please. The way they go to these hundreds, even thousands of flowers in a day, and they gather the pollen and then they have little, little like saddlebags for them. Can you describe that? It's just, it's, and then you show a picture. It's like, he's not kidding. It's literally a pollen bag. So, I mean, haven't, can you describe that? Yeah, absolutely. It, it's pretty cool. So a honey it is. is, is furry. And, and so every, like, even they even have little hairs on their eyes, which is just wild to think about. I, you said and that so there's hairs I, everywhere, including their eyeballs. I'm like, oh my God. So that's what we mean by giving the hairy eyeball. Yike. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, that's one way what I like to teach, especially kids, how to tell the difference between honeybees, which are very gentle and wasps and hornets, like yellow jackets, is that if it hairy is good. And then if it's smooth and looks like plastic, it's bad. So yes. Good plastic is bad. So what happens is the bee is traveling through the air. It's picking up kind of like a static electricity on on its um all those hairs. So think about like when we walk across a carpet in the winter and we get a spark when we yep. touch something. So the bee flies through the air, lands on a flower, and then instead of a spark, what happens is all the pollen like attaches to the bee all over its body. Then the bee has six legs, and on its uh, middle leg, it has essentially – it's like a comb built in on its leg. And it will use those combs to groom itself, and it pushes all these tiny particles of pollen down, like you said, into the saddlebags, which are on the back legs. And then they, they crush it in there until all these tiny particles are these big big balls. And by big balls, I would I would say it's, it's larger than um, – the head of a wooden match is how big those it's a lot. Balls are. I mean, the, in the photo, yeah. it's incredible. And then they, with that added weight, having gone from flower to flower, getting heavier and heavier, they get back to the hive. And then you have this whole description of a of an entire universe inside the hive that I never understood that bees need to keep a whole bunch of honey for themselves to overwinter. That's what they feed on. But the explain what the pollen's used for. I mean, to make bread, bee bread. Wow. Bee bread. Yeah. And that's so any, any mother out there knows the importance of prenatal nutrition. And so what the uh, pollen is useful, pollen is protein. 
and per ounce, there's more protein in bee pollen than there is in chicken breast. And so the bees, when they take it back, they think of like a, a nursery, right? So when you have your, your kid, you have everything you need in the room so you can easily take care of it. So the same is in the hive where the, the, they're raising their young, and it's the queen who lays all the eggs because she's essentially the mother of all the bees in that hive. And then so what they do is they take the pollen, and pollen is kind of like a walnut, has a hard shell. Yes. So the bees crack that nut, if you will, and then they, they mix it with honey. And that combination of honey and pollen is what we call bee bread because it's, it's kind of mushy. It looks more like dough than like a finished, finished uh, bread. Then the nurse bees will eat that bee bread, and that gives them the nutrition to feed the bees. And what they feed the bees is if it's a, just an everyday like a worker bee, they get worker um, jelly. And if it's going to be a queen, they feed it royal jelly. And where that is, it's in, in, the, in the bee's head, it has glands, and then it'll secrete uh, either one of those jellies, which is essentially bee milk for the developing babies. It's kind of amazing because not only do they have this entire like kitchen going on with very scientific, because they have to mix things and crack open shells, all these little bees that we think of just going out there, kind of landing on flowers, then landing on another. We never knew until your book how complex their work is. And then they come back and some of the pollen's used for that and some of the honey's used for that. And then they have to differentiate between the pupa and the larva and which which of those is going to become just a lower caste drone or worker bee and the ones that can become queens. And it's really quite extraordinary. Also, the pheromones that, that they're at, out of their hind end, they have pheromones in which they signal each other and communicate. And that's the reason you guys use smokers when you open a hive to keep everybody calm and not be viewed as, let's say, an intruding bear. Can you talk about those pheromones and how they, and how they perceive them? Yeah, it's, it's, it, bees communicate in two ways, one of which is, like you said, smells, pheromones, and everything in the hive gives off different pheromones. So like the one that most people know or talk about is called the queen pheromone. And what it is is she's constantly giving them off, which lets the rest of the hive know that she's present. Yes. And the and if she's removed or gets killed, then her pheromone will dissipate in 20 minutes. So within 20 minutes, the hive will know that they're without a queen, which then, you know, leads to other things. Additionally, the workers, as you were mentioning, give off pheromones. It could be everything from like a homing beacon to tell uh, their sister bees, hey, this is where we are, this is our house, um, to there's there's different jobs in a hive, one of which is guard bees where they kind of act like bouncers to a bar. And then if there's a, an intruder, they let off uh, a, a, an alert, alert, alarm pheromone. And um, what's interesting about that is it actually smells like bananas. So and you told me, you, I mean, in the book, you talk about you can smell it, right? You you, Frank, yes. can smell the banana smell. Yes. Yeah. It's, wow. It, it's really wild. Yeah. It's that. Um, and that's one of the things I love about beekeeping is how all of your senses are yes. engaged. Yes. So in addition to seeing the bees, which can be, you know, at, at its peak of the season, there can be 60,000 bees in a hive. 
And so just the, the smells of the honey and um, uh, the wax, as well as hearing the different noises and even feeling because when they're on the comb and like I wear either no gloves or just the thin nitrile gloves that you like get at the hardware store. Right. So I can feel the, the heat and, and then buzzing. So it's, it is amazing. Yeah, so the, the way the smoker works is that I, I always say like when kids are in school, if a fire alarm goes off, they know to go outside. So what the smoker is essentially doing, it's blocking their sense of smell in that if you put headphones on kids so they couldn't hear the uh, alarm going off and they would just keep doing what they normally do. Yes. I, I think that your description is is so great because it always brings it back to what would this be like if you were a human and the hive were your school or your home or your workplace. It's it's a wonderful book. And, and in the context of the guests I had before about sentience and how much people have much better senses of sight, smell, feel than we realize I think the beauty of your book is not only to illuminate the extraordinary capacities of bees, which really are breathtaking, but also to bring the human element into it, which is where your title comes from, Bee People and the Bugs They Love. The fact of your reveling in the sight, smell, feel of these extraordinary creatures and you know, a photo of you putting your hand into a whole swarm that's on the outside of a tree because it's lost its hive – and nothing bad happens because you aren't perceived. In fact, you put a little bit of honey on your fingers and that helps. But it it's very it's a very touching book, I think. It it really it's not nice to say that it humanizes bees, but you do sort of help us understand it because of our limited capacity for understanding anything outside ourselves. We've run out of time, Frank Mortimer, but you have done a great service to bees and to anyone who's even a little bit interested. And maybe there's some potential bee nerds out there. Bee People and the Bugs They Love is a wonderful book. Thank you for being here. Oh, thank you so much. It was great to be here, and I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the guests as much as I did. Kiss your kitties and hug your pooches, and we will talk again next week. Bye for now. <laughs>